Hi, I'm Robert Lee, and you're listening to The Word on Campus. This show gives you a behind-the-scenes look at how some of the best university podcasts are made. You're going to hear from leading higher ed podcasters as they walk through parts of their process and how to overcome hurdles unique to higher ed. Welcome to the Word on Campus, where we take a behind-the-scenes look at how some of the best university podcasts get made. Jenny Luna is here with me today. She is the Senior Digital Content Producer at Stanford University Graduate School of Business, managing all podcast products for them. And in this episode, we're going to focus on their podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, which provides the tools, techniques, and best practices to help you communicate more effectively. This show has consistently held top spots on the Apple podcast charts in the business and career categories, and we're going to dig into that and more. So Jenny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Robert. So first of all, what was your background like? Did you have an interest in audio before working on Think Fast, Talk Smart? Yeah, I did. I uh, went to journalism school and I was at Columbia Journalism School, the class of 2015, which is the same year that Serial launched. So I felt like I was in the right place at the right time in terms of podcasting. So I was focused on audio storytelling when I was in journalism school and then afterward worked at a food politics podcast for Mother Jones Magazine. So when I started at Stanford, even though I was hired to do more digital content creation and social media, it always was on the back of my mind, I want to start a podcast here. Uh, okay. Did you ever start your own podcast by any chance? You know, people ask me that all the time. What's my podcast going to be? Yeah. And ironically, I don't feel like I have a lot to say. And I really get jazzed about being behind the scenes and helping elevate other voices or talk about things that are interesting. I didn't have my own podcast, but when I worked in San Francisco, I loved making my own radio stories. So going out in the field and recording people and doing more reported narrated segments. Ah, sure. Sure. Okay. Yeah. You, you have things to say. Don't be so humble about it. My longtime dream is for me and my pen pal of 12 years to sit down and just read our old letters from each other. So that might be one. Uh, it would be probably an audience of two, but we may get to it someday. Three. I'm interested in listening to that. We're up really quick. Where's the pen pal? Well, we started when I lived in Spain and she lived in Nevada. And then she moved to New York and Ohio. She's a critical theory PhD. And so she's lived all over the U.S. And we've really been in touch just writing letters the past 12 years of our life, which is pretty cool to look back on. And ironically, she just moved to the Bay Area. So we're still writing letters, but it only takes about a day and a half to get to each other. Letters are better than emails. So keep on doing that. Let me ask you this. When you first heard about Think Fast, Talk Smarts, how did that show come to be? Was it you know, your idea? Was it the, the host idea? Was it some communications initiative? This is a really fun story. And Matt and I think about it a lot. So Matt gave a talk at an alumni reunion for the Graduate School of Business maybe 10 years ago at this point. He didn't know the talk was being recorded and it got onto YouTube. And I think somehow the algorithm, the mystery of YouTube linked how to give a speech or how to publicly speak with Matt's talk that he called Think Fast, Talk Smart. And so it sort of exploded. And at that point, I was working on the content team. And I said, I want to make a podcast. And so they said, well, let's 
start with something that we know our audience is interested in. We looked at this video from Matt that was getting thousands of hits an hour, pretty much. And we thought, well, he teaches communication. Would he be interested? So we asked Matt to coffee at Koopa Cafe there on campus. And we sat him down and we said, would you ever want to start a podcast? And at that point, I don't know if he had really even listened to podcasts, but he is someone who's always game to try new things. So it started from there. And our first episode launched in January of 2020. So sort of the next hurdle was, of course, March, when everything shut down, we had published about six episodes. At this point, we had done all of our recordings in studio on campus. And Matt called me and I remember I was in my front yard. Everybody was working from home. It was probably like March 16th. And he said, you know what? I've got two teenage sons at home. They know about recording equipment. I think I can pull this off from home. I want to keep going with this. So I think it was also right place at the right time because people were having to figure out how to communicate via Zoom and on screens. And so we did a lot of content around then, right as we were going through that same challenge ourselves. Wow. Okay. So you said as an episode, one of your many favorites called Leading from Home, How to Create the Right Environment for Communication. Can you give us a, a gist about what this episode is about? Yeah, this episode is with a professor of marketing, Jonathan Mavav, and he talks a lot about his research. He does research on decision fatigue. He does research on the ways that leaders can manage better when you're both in the office and at home and how to manage expectations as a leader. He's done a lot of really interesting research and he does an excellent job of talking about it in a way that's really engaging. And this episode won an award, right? Yes, it won a Webby, which feels so exciting to us. I think that's something we never really thought we would be in the running for. And so to win felt really exciting. That's amazing. So we're going to play a clip of this. And while people are listening, what do you want to pay attention to? This one for me was really interesting because it was the first time we had a studio recording and I actually had something happen. I can't remember what, where I couldn't be in the studio. And so Matt was the only one. There was no producer with him. And we don't have a very high tech studio by any means, but just the fact that you're hosting and you have to press record and watch the levels can be really intimidating. But Matt nailed it. He did it himself. He ran all the equipment. He managed to get us the file. I think it sounded great. And the other reason I really liked this episode is when I listened to it, when Matt sent me the file, I realized that because Matt and Jonathan have a friendship, the episode was already at a different level. There was rapport. It was less question, answer, question, answer. It was a conversation between the two of them. I think there's a point where they tease each other or laugh. So I really started to think about tapping into Matt's network for guests or having Matt meet people even before for the interview, because I think having that rapport can really strengthen the interview when the recording's happening. Got it. Well, okay, so let's take a quick listen to this. You ran an online course here at Stanford for the School of Engineering entitled Leading from Home. I'd like to have you share some of the things you teach in two topic areas. First, can you tell us how do you lead when your office is just a 13-inch screen? It's a great question. And to be honest with you, it's something that we're in the process of figuring out. Right. Yes, working from home was growing. It was up to about 5% of the workforce yeah. in 2018. But now I think it's, you know, it's going to end up being 25, 30 or 40%. Right. And we're, we're trying to figure that out. What, what we teach in that course is we say, let's think about 
basic elements of the psychology of the workplace, how they play out face-to-face, and how they might be different when, when your world is basically reduced to, to a 13-inch screen. I'll give you an example, like norms. When I go to the office, in a face-to-face office, there's all kinds of implicit and explicit norms, right? So you have the explicit norms are communicated when you have employee onboarding or when your boss talks to you or when your colleagues talk to you. That's where you learn what you're supposed to do and how to do it. Exactly right. right. But then there's implicit norms, like what time do people get in here in the morning? Or like, what's okay to wear? Or what kind of language is it okay to use? Like, can you curse? You know, it's like, you know, you know, throw an F word from time to time. Does that make you seem cooler or does that make you seem more like like a not a cooler? Um, <laughs> I was wondering what you're going to yeah, say there. I have to be careful. I don't, I don't know the this norms is, here. This is a G-rated podcast, I don't. Jonathan. That's right. I don't know the norms here, so right. I stop myself. The, the hardest thing is to figure out now when everybody's remote and or distributed teams and everything is through a 13-inch office, what are the norms? And so one of the things that we teach is the first thing you have to do is you have to catalog what are the norms that you have in the face-to-face world and mm-hmm. what's the purpose of those norms? Right. So let's say we have a norm that we shake hands. Okay, so that norm, what's the purpose of it? It's to be able to say, I have a connection, I'm here, and there's nothing that says connected more than physical contact. Okay, so now let's think about the 13-inch office. What are ways in this environment in which I can create connectedness? So maybe, you know, I'll give you a very simple example. Maybe I use a handshake emoji, which is, I know it's kind of a lame example, but right. it's, but, 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 but but it's, it's give fulfilling you a the same obligation. Exactly, right. fulfill the same obligation. So it's like, oh, or, or maybe it's not a handshake emoji. Maybe it's a different kind of emoji that like right. suggests contact, like a hand up as a, right. with, that's like a certain kind of wave or something like that. And so what we do is we catalog those types of things. Mm-hmm. So for instance, so norms is one of them, things like nonverbal cues. Yeah. When you and I are sitting together in a room, there's a bunch of, not, like you just nodded. I did. Okay, so you nodded. So that suggests to me, hey, I hear you. When we're doing things through a screen or we're doing things, imagine, for example, just with voice, right. I don't see the nods. I don't have that nonverbal cue, which means that I, as a communicator, as a leader, have to find other ways to show right. that I'm engaged. So I'll say, uh-huh. Right. Right? Maybe I don't naturally say, uh-huh, but now I've indicated to you through this other modality that sure. the equivalent of a nod. Right. And so we go through a catalog of that stuff and encourage people to join. I think it's one of the most interesting problems and it speaks to the future of work. Absolutely. Uh, another topic from your course that piqued my curiosity was how do you maintain a company culture when some or all of the employees are remote? Short answer, it's tough. It's not just maintain a company culture. You have to establish a company culture. Right, right, yeah. First, you have to ask yourself, wait a second, what's the culture we have? What's the culture we want to have? Right. Okay, and then... With a bunch of trial and error, actually, say, okay, if I wanted to fulfill, suppose I want to have a culture that's innovative. Okay, I want to have an innovative culture. Now I'm far away. How do I create environments for people to have those serendipitous conversations where they come up with new ideas? Mm -hmm. So maybe you have, you know, some people do things like before a meeting, the first five minutes are meant for just silly serendipitous conversation. Right. Another thing you say, okay, there's research that suggests that when people go out and take a walk, they're more creative. So maybe you actually encourage employees to do voice conversations while walking, walking. Right. right? Because when you're moving around, you may be physically inspired by things around you, but it's it's a deliberate process. Yeah, when you do those walking talks, uh, it, it's hard because sometimes people are really panting and, and sweating as yeah. they go. But it, it presumes it's, being in shape. That's right, that's right. Um, this notion of norms, symbols, and rituals, uh, cataloging them and then thinking very deliberately about what you want I think is so important. Uh, I know you recently delivered a lecture on the top 12 lessons you've learned about communication from your many years in the classroom. I would love to have you share two or three of those lessons with us. 
here, here's the ones that I tend to repeat a lot. Uh, you have to earn the right to bullshit. I said it was a G-rated. All right, yeah. <laughs> we'll believe that. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what that means is that first a story has to have a core and then it has to have the refinements. And that's true in any kind of presentation or in even any kind of writing. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you see people, they try to use this fancy language, but they use fancy language on vapid ideas. All right. So coming back here, you mentioned the rapport elements, right, between Matt and, and his guests. For guests who the host does not have as much previous experience with, not like a, such a long friendship, how do you build as much rapport as you can before the interview? That's a great question. That's something we're still experimenting with, but I can tell you about one small change that we've made where I've noticed a bit of difference. So we used to have people come down into the studio and our studio is in a basement and it's in a sort of enclosed space. And so it immediately was setting up sort of a nervous energy because it's a small space. You have to use a lot of key cards to get in through the doors. (laughs) Yeah, top secret. And then we thought this is setting up an intimidating environment and we noticed the warmups would take longer. So now Matt meets the guest upstairs at the campus coffee shop and he asks them about their day and they may or may not grab a coffee depending on time and then he walks them down to the studio and I've noticed that even those five minutes can really help the person settle in and then we can sort of make a joke about like okay welcome to the dungeon of the studio it's a tight space get ready to get comfortable and then we can sort of ease them into the conversation. Gotcha. And let me ask this, are most interviews in person or remote? We are slightly more remote. It's not quite 50-50. I would say we're probably doing 60 to 70% of our interviews remotely because it just allows us to reach a wider range of experts who are basically all over the world. We just interviewed someone in Ireland last Friday. Wow. Okay. So in terms of getting people comfortable in the remote setting, do you do some like pre-calls or what happens there? I wish we could say that we did a lot of pre-calls and we did so much prep, but I also have the luxury of working with Matt Abrahams, who is a communication specialist. So I have to say he has a wonderful way, even via screen, of warming people up. And often the people he's chatting with are somehow in his network. So he can bring up a common colleague that they have, or maybe they taught together years ago. So I think he leans a little bit on that from the beginning of the call. Um, and we, he does sometimes send them some questions beforehand if they ask, because he, we think that can sometimes make guests more comfortable. Mm, gotcha. How do you source guests? Who's the ideal Think Fast, Talk Smart guest for you? Wow, that's a great question. So we really started with just graduate school business faculty. So professors of marketing, professors of organizational behavior, and then we branched out to Stanford at large. We talked to Andrew Huberman, neuroscientist, people at the law school, the med school, the school of education. And then we just started reaching even more broadly outside of that. So for me, it's really important that the person isn't coming on just to promote their coaching business. For example, we get a lot of pitches from people who are communication coaches, executive coaches, and it's a way to get their name out there and their brand. It's really important to us that there's still an academic element or there's an element of track record leadership. So, for example, we had Kim Scott on recently. And while Kim Scott isn't 
a professor in any sense. She's had such high ranking positions in Facebook and Google over the years that I want to hear about her management experience. I think it also helps if someone has written a book so that we can read the ideas that they have and then talk about how we want to share them on the show. Sure, sure. For some of the guests who are from you know more of like an academic group, how do you balance kind of this academic background with like storytelling? Because on some podcasts I work with, right, if it's a, like a faculty member, sometimes where they're so passionate about their work that they really get into it, but it's not being told in a, in a way for, I guess, a layman, right? So how, how do you prep the guests for that? That is a challenge. And we've run into that quite a few times. Some people are great at teaching. And so they have that sort of stage presence and they can tell the stories and some are great at research and they can talk about their research, but all of a sudden you're having a conversation with jargon and you know that the listener is lost. So a lot of times we will, because we're obviously editing this, we will just say, can you say that again? And often sort of put it on ourselves. You know what? I'm sorry. I, I there was a miss, you can almost sort of fib my equipment. I, I heard like a popping sound. Could you, could you say that again? Because often when they have a chance to say it again, they're going to say it a little bit more clearly and a little more succinctly. And then again, we also say, can you give me an example of that? That's a big follow-up question. And then something Matt has done as a host that's been great for Think Fast Talk Smart is paraphrasing what his guests say. So after each answer, he's really doing the job of guiding the listeners through. That's a very important key. So you mentioned two points there. One is just having them repeat it. And then the second element of the role of the host kind of expanding from just question asking, right, into paraphrasing and kind of synthesizing ideas as you come along. I see what you're doing there. Are you paraphrasing me talking about paraphrasing? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm learning on the spot. I'm learning on the spot. Love it. Was Matt always doing that like from the very beginning or was it kind of a learned skill over time? I think a learned skill over time, especially in those episodes where he saw exactly what you just described, someone speaking a little bit more in jargon or getting more into the academic side. Because we started the podcast really with only folks Matt knew or had a rapport with, those were easy. They were conversations. They were light. But as we started to talk to more people who he wasn't familiar with, he started to really use the paraphrasing after each answer. Okay. Okay. Got it. For many hosts, you know, there's definitely a host coaching element and definitely the more reps you get in, right? The, the more easily it comes to you, I guess. So let me dig into a, a different topic here. I think we have to talk about the reach of Think Fast, Talk Smart, which goes, you know, nowadays way beyond just the Stanford JSB community. As recording this show, I was just checking it out. I think on Apple, at least you guys have 400 plus ratings a ton of subscribers. I know you have a ton of downloads. So can you tell me about how you and your team worked over time to gain this notoriety? Yes. And Robert, I wish I could list, these are the top five things we totally did and we knew what we were doing, but it's a little bit of a black box in some aspects, but I can tell you a lot of my ideas of why I think it's done so well. First is timing starting in January of 2020, and then really continuing through March, that was big for us. Even bigger than that is having the Stanford brand. I think being able to offer something for free that is quick and easy to digest and people see 
that it's from Stanford is really helpful. People want to learn. And when it has that S, they know I'm about to get some really good education from institutional leaders, from people that are changing the world. So I think having the Stanford brand to lean on was great, as well as having the Stanford social media channels as well. Another thing I think that was in our favor for growth was our YouTube channel. We have a lot of subscribers for our YouTube channel. We also made sure that Matt was promoting the podcast on each episode, making sure to tell people where else they could find episodes, asking them to rate and subscribe. That was the big thing that we tried to incorporate early on. We were also really diligent about publishing and we didn't take a break. We have seen on the weeks where we have taken breaks over the summer or over the holidays, we see a slight dip in listenership. And so we're really, we just moved from every two weeks to every week publishing an episode because people want the content and we want to be there for them. So that was another reason I think we were able to build audiences that we were in. They subscribed. We were in the top of their podcast feed consistently. We didn't take a hiatus. Yeah. So from a outsider's perspective, when I look at the social community for Think Fast, Talk Smart, I'm always impressed because it seems really active and really engaged. How did it become that way? And how do you guys build on engagements? What kind of lessons do you learn along the way for getting more people into the conversation? I would love to give Matt a lot of credit because it's really due to him. He goes on LinkedIn and he likes and he recomments. So just as much as Think Fast Talk Smart has grown on LinkedIn, Matt Abrahams has grown on LinkedIn. He's very engaged. If he if someone tags him, he responds. So he is definitely, I think, the biggest reason why our LinkedIn has grown so much. But another thing is we've done a lot of fun giveaways. So we ask audience for our input and then we've mailed them mugs, for example, or maybe some stickers or some pins, just some swag so that they feel part of the community. We also it's a value of ours to be grateful. So we're also thanking our listeners as much as we can. Another reason that I think our community has grown so much is Stanford Business School has a bunch of great online certificate programs. And a lot of people who sign up for that, for example, Stanford Lead is one of them. They will also be really into the podcast. So we have that connection as well, where people are already taking a Stanford class online. And so then they plug into the podcast and they're really excited and they're very engaged. Okay. You just mentioned one of your values is gratefulness. Do you have a set of values for this show? Of course. We wouldn't make it otherwise. First and foremost is helping people. That's our main mission and our main goal. And that's honestly why we've made a lot of a lot of the choices that we have. We want to grow as much as we can. For example, We've found a lot of people are using the show to learn English. So we are doing a lot of English language learning to help that segment of our audience. That's cool. I don't often hear, you know, values associated with like a, like a podcast production for a spirit show. I love it though. And I, I'm curious about this. So when working with Matt, how involved is he? So he's, he's really active in the social media audience engagement world. How, how much of a role does he have in the, in the pre-production prep? And, and other aspects. Huge. I would say that Matt is as much of a producer as he is a host, which I think is really rare, especially in the higher ed space when we're working with faculty who don't have a lot of time, who don't have a lot of experience. 
but Matt is often, Matt is usually preparing all of his own questions. He's often taking the first pass of edits. So I feel very grateful to be working with him because I think we make a great team and he offers so much more than just his voice and communication expertise. If you were to give like a, like a ballpark guess, like how much time do you think Matt spends percentage wise on the podcast? Percentage of his life? Yeah, percentage of his life. Yeah, like like uh, in regards to other things that he does. Matt, if you're listening, I hope you would agree and not take offense if I say <laughs> 75%. Wow, really? I mean, I'm I'm teasing him a little bit here, but he's very, like I said, he's very engaged. He's very interested in helping people. So he will go on LinkedIn and he will reach out to people. If people reach out to him to tell him to thank him about the show, he will respond with an email. So it's really just him wanting to connect with listeners and help people. And he's also an idea machine. So he is always coming up with new ideas and new guests and forming new relationships. He's on a bunch of other podcasts talking about Think Fast, Talk Smart. So I think there's a joke and I'll have to ask him again. There's sort of a joke in his household where his wife teases him that he's like two people in one. He gets as much as two people would do. I think the host doesn't normally carry as much of the production as Matt does. Yeah. And that's, that's why I wanted to ask the question, because I just want to highlight this, this importance of investment from all sides, right? And just commitment, level of commitment to the podcast. So it makes sense, right? With mass level commitment, if you're saying 75% of his life, <laughs> this show must be successful, right? It must be like growing. And I will say that when we first started out, I think part of our strategy was to bring him in and teach him how everything is made, because we had found in other situations where the professor or person just thought we would do everything. And so educating him on what was involved and kind of bringing him in early, I think really led to our success there as well. Gotcha. And being a lecturer versus a professor, those listening who work in higher ed definitely understand that. And I think lecturers, as Matt is, have to hustle in a different way than a tenure line professor does. Mm, like slightly different like motivation in a way. So Jenny... You know, looking forward, uh, what are you excited about for the podcast? Kind of what, what's coming up? Oh my gosh, I'm really excited. Wow, where to start? So we're going to do a lot of new marketing efforts. We've just learned more about our audience. So something we learned, for example, is that our gender split is 50-50, which is pretty rare in the podcast world, which to me, being in content, I'm immediately wanting to make more episodes for women, make a spinoff series for women. Clearly, people who identify as women are logging on and wanting to learn about communication techniques. And so how can we speak to that audience? We are also doing a lot more cross-promotion and marketing, which we haven't done in the past. So I'm looking forward to working with other podcasts, doing feed drops or cross-promos. That's sort of new for us. And this is still my pie-in-the-sky dream, but someday taking the show on the road, having Matt do a tour and getting to really go shake the hands and interface with all of these listeners who are all over the world. That's the big dream. I think it's uh, it's coming up. That's coming up. It could be next year. <laughs> Jenny, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's been really fun. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for tuning in. If you found this episode helpful, help us get the word out by leaving a review and sharing the show with your colleagues. Our goal is to help grow the education podcasting community so the more ears we can reach, the better. The Word on Campus is a production of University FM.